As we know in other walks of life, when people duck out of their assigned responsibilities, someone else will take them over instead, and no good will come of it. When humans sin, they hand to non-divine forces a power and authority that those forces were never supposed to have. Welcome to B-Sides. I'm Pastor Brandon. Every message has a side B, and this one is for Isaiah chapters 13 through 27, the swallowing of death. Now, in these chapters, chapters 24 through 27 expand Isaiah's vision to its ultimate end. They're known as Isaiah's apocalypse, or the little apocalypse. Apocalypse simply means unveiling, and he's being given a peep as if God's lifting the curtain to the backstage of end times, giving him a little peep at what's to come. Revelation also is an apocalypse. It's an unveiling of what is going on behind the scenes, which we are going to get into. Now, I said that chapters 24 to 27, this Isaiah apocalypse, is the climax or the end of his um, extending vision. If you think of concentric circles, you have the center, the circle around that, and the circle outside that. You see that in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus tells the disciples just before he ascends to heaven, he tells them to wait in Jerusalem until the promised power comes upon them, the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon him, he says that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, the center, Judea, the region around it, Samaria, the first boundary outside of Jewish land, and then to the ends of the earth. Notice the unspecified ends of the earth. It doesn't end. We're still expanding the kingdom, the influence of God's reign over our lives. Well, Isaiah has something similar. And by the way, Luke, who wrote Acts, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, was heavily influenced by the prophecies of Isaiah. He shares much of Isaiah's vision for the nations. So, shouldn't surprise us then that Isaiah has a similar concentric circle. In chapters 1 through 12, he focuses on Jerusalem and prophecies for the politics there, the king, the people. Hey, take calm. God is with us. We're okay. Chapters 13 through 23, he starts addressing the nations, starting with big, bad Assyria and Babylon, but then uh, checking off their neighbors one by one. They're all going down. God's up to something, you know? The, the, the world is his stage, and he's got a plan. And then, so from Jerusalem to the neighbors, to this little apocalypse, chapters 24 to 27, the entire earth and the earth itself, and not just the earth, but the forces, the powers, the darkness, the things that are behind the curtain of the stage, the things that need to be unveiled for us to see, much as Revelation does, is unveiled here. There are things that are operating behind the reality we live in. And this has been generally summarized as spiritual warfare. 
but biblically, the words vary widely from forces, powers, darkness, heavenly hosts, and so forth. So, um, we're going to get into that a little bit. So I have two things I want to share. The first is the hope of an apocalypse. And then we'll get into the powers. So, an apocalypse, as we get to Isaiah chapter 24, we see that God has a plan for the earth, right? Isaiah 24, 1, behold, Yahweh will empty the earth and make it desolate. Okay. So, on one hand, when we get to passages like this, and we start talking about the future, end times, or the apocalypse, there can be an anxiety, an anxiety that, that takes hold of people. Um, they're not sure what to think about it. It sounds scary. We don't like the idea that things could suddenly and dramatically come to an end, that everything as we know it will eventually become unstable. And yeah, yeah, I think we all understand that. In fact, um, sometimes they go out of their way to make it sound horrible. As chapter 24 goes on to say in verse 17, Terror and the pit and snare are upon you, O inhabitants of the earth. He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit. He who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare, for the windows of heaven are opened, and the foundations of the earth tremble. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgressions lies heavy upon it, and it falls, and it will not rise again. And yeah, we start to feel this sudden Oh, we're dreading the future. Now, we do believe that God will protect his people, but this is not what necessarily what I'm getting at here. What I'm getting at is, yes, the apocalypse in the end can have this scary, terrifying scene, but what we need to see in it is the radical vision of the Bible in a time when there was no thought of an end. The apocalypse means that there's an end. It means that time is linear, that there is a starting point and there's an ending point. And this, this was forward thinking in the time the Bible's written because pagan nations, the neighbors of Israel, all assumed that life, the world, the cosmos was going in an endless cycle of repetition that things would continue to renew themselves over and over and over. Yet Isaiah comes along and says, no, there's an end. There's an ending point. And so Christianity really became novel in the sense that we're going somewhere, which is why I think it's one of the reasons stories resonate with the human spirit so much. Because stories go somewhere, right? We're not, we're not gonna sit down and watch an endless movie about Bill who gets up every morning, brushes his teeth, ties his shoes, burns his toes, and gets into traffic, goes to work, comes back home, watches TV, goes to bed, start over, and that's the movie over and over. Nobody will watch that. That, that isn't a story. A story goes somewhere, it takes us somewhere, it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And so does the Bible. 
which is incredibly helpful for us because it means that you are not stuck wherever you are. You're in a season, but that season gives way to another season. And yes, the seasons in our life are cyclical, right? I mean, we have spring, summer, fall, winter, and they repeat. Well, but in our walk with God, our seasons aren't cyclical. We're not just going to go all the way back to the start again, like a Monopoly, go back to the start. And we don't have to take that card. We get to keep progressing to the finish line. So this season feels like it's just repeating, but look at it from the grand story that our author is writing. You're going somewhere. There's an apocalypse. We're getting there. And so the Bible, like all stories, has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Now the nature of this ending, while on the surface looks horrific, is meant to bring us back to the way things are supposed to be. Why it's horrific, I'll get to in a minute. But I want you to see the beginning, middle, and end of the Bible story. So I want you to imagine, in your mind, a V. The letter V, like victory. You have three points on the V. You have the upper left, that then strokes down, to the bottom, where you have your second point, and then it goes back up to the third point on the upper right, right? So point one on the top, which can, uh, makes a point at the bottom, and there's the second point at the top. So you have those three points. So imagine now starting at the first point of the V, just like you're drawing it, right, from the top down. Um, that first point represents the beginning of our story. In the beginning, God created the heavens, and the earth. And now in paraphrase, it was paradise. The Garden of Eden was well watered. It was where God and humans lived together and cooperated in ruling over the creation together. It says that he gave the humans dominion to rule over creation to expand it, to multiply, to subdue it. And they were to do that in partnership with God. But that top point of the V begins to slide quickly down because the humans rebel. They don't want to work with God. They want the power, but they don't want to do it with God. The serpent convinces them they can do it on their own. So they do. And now we see everything begin to unravel. This is the middle And it continues to unravel as we see the sin of the world expand and things get dark. Israel becomes slaves. God delivers them, but they become slaves again to idolatry. And finally, we slope all the way to the bottom point, the middle of the story. And it doesn't get any lower than when the creation kills the creator. So first we turn our back on the creator, right? So we don't want you, we'll do things our way. But then the creator comes to us in the form of Jesus to restore things with us, but we are so adamant on ruling the world our way, on keeping our kingdom, the kingdom of earth, the kingdom of man intact, that we kill him. That's the bottom point. That's the middle of the story. Yet, we now slope back up 
on the V. We start moving upward on that second leg toward the third point when Jesus comes out of the tomb and says, in a sense, not even your hatred can stop me. Not even your sin can keep me away. You have just let me come out in the future life, the resurrection life, the eternal life, which will inherit the new heaven and the new earth, heaven. It comes out of the tomb. And we see that in this little apocalypse of Isaiah, don't we? Where we see that um, God will swallow up death forever. Which, a line, by the way, which Paul takes in in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, Oh, death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? Death has been swallowed. That he there borrows from Isaiah 27. Or, I'm sorry, uh, 25. Jesus comes out of the tomb. And now we're moving toward the third and final point of the story, the end. And as things between points one and two, between the creation and the killing of the creator, things are going downhill. Now things are going uphill from the resurrection of the creator toward the end. And things are going up. And yes, it doesn't feel like the earth is getting any better. And no, I'm not proposing necessarily that there's going to be this gradual evolution of an improving world. I'm not saying that. But in the church, things are getting good. See, we see where there was darkness and sin having dominion and idolatry was rampant. In the church, things have been reversed. Instead of murder, there's love. Instead of hatred, there's forgiveness. Instead of lust, there's self-sacrificing and generosity. There's hospitality. There's mercy. The fruits of the Spirit are repopulating the earth with the Garden of Eden. So things are moving up. And these people, the church, the followers of Jesus, are training to become rulers with God, like Adam was in the beginning, rulers with him for the new heavens and the new earth, for we had wrecked the first heavens and the first earth. And so the third and final point when we get to the top of this V is Revelation 21. And John says, behold, I saw a new heavens and a new earth. And there, the dwelling place of God is now with men and he will live with them and he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. We come to the end, full circle. Friends, that's the apocalypse. It tells us that there's a direction to the story. Now, it may not be the straight line we hope it is, and it's not. Instead, it's like a V. It's the shape of a V, but it sure beats a circle, doesn't it? It beats a circle because otherwise we're just going to do this all over again. Oh, things are good and all things are bad. Things are good, all things are bad. But unfortunately, some of us live life like that. We're, we're riding a, a roller coaster. We're up and we're down. We're up and we're down. We, we haven't learned to ride the storyline that God is writing. So yes, there's an up and down in the gospel, but it's much more stable. We know that there's a huge chunk of our life that was going down, but now it's going up. But most people don't live with that sense and they're just kind of lost in this reaction to whatever's coming to them in life. God wants us to have a plan and to move toward something, to move forward, to see that he's got everything moving. Let's move with his flow. Okay? So the reason that the apocalypse can sound dangerous and scary is because this whole story is about kingdoms. It's about humanity wanting their own kingdom and not wanting to share it with God's kingdom. So we kick his kingdom out, but his kingdom comes back. 
and now it's spreading in our midst. And it will finally take over in the end. So the apocalypse has its terror precisely because the kingdom of God will move in and not share its space with the kingdom of man. If if humans still want to have their own kingdom, there will be a different place for them. But the kingdom of God will be here for those who have been practicing to rule and reign with Christ in it. So, I read about all that terror, right? In Psalm or Isaiah 24. Well, look at how Isaiah 24 ends. Verse 23, for Yahweh of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. He's there in Jerusalem, and it says he will reign. He reigns, and his glory will be there before his elders. So he's got a government. Who are those elders? Ooh, possibly the church? Who knows? It's not, it's not as clear as we wish it was, is it? And then that's where it starts talking about on Jerusalem, there's going to be this feast for all peoples, and he's going to swallow up death forever. Death will be gone. There's going to be no more dying. It's the new heaven and the new earth. Death that Adam and Eve brought to the earth will be completely wiped out. Because Jesus did that on the cross. And it will finally be instilled on the earth. That's where we're going. The apocalypse, yes, has its scary moments, but that's because anytime two kingdoms clash, you are going to get some turbulence. But eventually, the kingdom of God takes over. And that, my friends, is what Revelation is all about. I mean, forget all the crazy imagery and the confusion you have about it. What Revelation essentially boils down to is a story about the kingdom of God taking over for good. So, it shouldn't surprise us then that we see a lot of turbulence in Revelation as well. But I want to read what's very similar to what we just read in Isaiah. I want to read that in Revelation. So, if you're familiar with the book, the Lamb, Jesus, on the throne, which means he's ascended, he opens a scroll, which probably is um, like the title deed of creation of the earth or something like that. He opens the seven seals, right? The seventh seal he opens... And there's silence, and then there are seven angels that come forth, and they blow seven trumpets. And they blow their trumpets, and the earth reels, and there's more turmoil, because the kingdom of humanity is feeling the squeeze. And so they're revolting. And then, in the seventh trumpet, we see the grand climax. Revelation 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world, or the kingdom of humanity, right? That's what we've been talking about. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. He's going to reign. That's what the apocalypse is about. That's where the story is headed. The question is, which kingdom do we want? To serve. That leads to the second thing I wanted to share, and that was about the powers. So, still in Isaiah 24, because the powers are what presently rule. You might have noticed that if humans think that we're ruling, we're not doing a good job, and you're right. Because you know from the New Testament, Paul talks about sin as if it rules over us. We're slaves to this thing, and that's right. Now, 
there's this little verse. I didn't mention it on Sunday because it would have led to this large rabbit trail. And as you know, the message was already 60 minutes long. Like we really need to add a couple more minutes. So we're doing it here. Isaiah 24, 21. Really interesting. This little subtle reference. And the commentaries led down this rabbit trail in the New Testament, which I'm going to take you down to now. A lot of fuzziness about it. But there's enough there that we can see a basic story emerge. So here we go. It's Isaiah chapter 24, verse 21 and 22. On that day, Isaiah's way of saying some sometime down the future, on that day, Yahweh will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison, and after many days, they will be punished. Huh. So, he's going to round up the host of heaven and the kings of the earth. They'll gather them as prisoners in a pit, and they will be shut up in prison and then punished. Now, on its own, it's like, okay... But then you start to read the New Testament, and you realize that they're using some of this language, and that they're actually expanding. And so we got a few verses to put together, and I think a story will emerge. So, if you will, um, I'm going to read you from Jude, from First and Second Peter, from Ephesians and Colossians. Okay? So here's Jude. Jude chapter 1 verse 6 says this. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwellings, he, God, has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So angels, we saw these hosts of heaven, we saw these rulers of the earth. So uh, angels, it seems to be the New Testament's way of talking about that. Nonetheless, they are held in prison. They're the prisoners Isaiah talked about. They're in the pit. They're the prisoners. And he's going to deal with them um, until the judgment of the great day. So Isaiah said they'll be punished. Okay. So now we have Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Second Peter 2, verse 4 says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And then he goes on as part of an argument, but there, there we get that little fragment. He didn't spare these angels that apparently rebelled. He now has them chained and kept until the judgment. Hmm. Now, first Peter chapter three. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, and so forth. It keeps going. 
But there, there it is again. This idea of disobedience, some sort of spirit, some angel, some host, some, something that's moving around in the background of reality, right? It's, it's veiled. It's behind that veil. It's part of the apocalyptic world. Somewhere there was a disobedience. They were chained or imprisoned and they will be judged. We're seeing this pattern, right? Well, Colossians now suggests that this was dealt with largely. These powers were defeated when Jesus died on the cross. So look at how Colossians chapter 2 talks about this. Colossians 2.15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame triumphing over them in him. So the larger context here in Colossians is talking about Jesus' death and its meaning. And then here we see, because of the cross, Christ triumphs over these rulers and authorities and puts them to open shame. So one of the things that, that Caesar would do when he conquers a region is he would gather prisoners, prisoners of war, and take them as slaves. He would chain them and and drag them to Rome so that when he returns to the city, it would be in an uproar of parade and celebration, praising their savior, their deliverer, who has conquered yet another enemy, and Caesar would parade through the city with the prisoners of war chained behind him right? Triumphing or parading and opening them to shame, showing that I have conquered. What Paul does in Colossians is he borrows that victory imagery that all the Romans would know. They would have seen about it or heard about it in the news. They would all know about that. And he says, this is this is like what happened when Christ died on the cross, is that he took those powers, those rebellious spirits, that, that, that stuff that's happening behind the veil in the apocalyptic world, he entered into that and he conquered it through his death on the cross, and now it's chained. He has authority over it. Isn't that amazing? Then it, one more, Ephesians chapter 1. Paul now talking about his resurrection and his ascension and, and also makes a mention here about Christ's authority over it. Um, I should say before I read this that, um, Ephesians 1 here, but, uh, at the end of this book in Ephesians 6, that's where he talks about the full armor of God and how we take our stand against these powers. But as we'll see, we're able to stand against these powers, one, because they're defeated as we're seeing. And they're chained, they're, they're stripped of their power, but two, because, um, we can stand against them because, um, he's given us the armor, right? And so we don't have to fear. We weren't told to, to attack these powers in Ephesians 6. He told us over and over, stand, stand therefore, stand firm therefore, because we don't need to advance against them. They're already defeated. We need to hold our place. And all that, that these powers can do is try to lure us out of our position in Christ. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19, he's praying that he wants us to know these things. And the third thing he wants us to know is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. The immeasurable greatness of his power, his power, not the powers that are behind the cosmic scene, his power. 
what kind of power? Paul, fortunately, gets very specific for us. So that we may know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to, so this is what the power is like, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. I want you to know the immeasurable power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, that is toward us who believe. I want you to know that that power that raised Christ from the dead is working in us. But it gets even better. So according to the power that worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So this is the ascension. This is Christ sitting at the right hand of the father. This is him on the throne of the universe in charge over all. What powers, what dark forces. He is the king over all, as Paul will now make explicit. So he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That is true power. And Paul concludes, he put all things under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He's right there on the throne, right next to God, the father, God, the son, right there. That power over everything. And he's now letting that trickle down to the church. Who are the elders working alongside him? Who are the ones co-ruling and reigning over the cosmos with him? Yep. Which is why the apocalypse is both scary and exhilarating. Because the kingdom of the world does not want to lose its kingdom. But the Christ has already taken his seat, and we can't go back. No one can take him down. And if you are serving him, his power is on your side. And he's going to move us in. And the new heavens and the new earth will be ruled by us. And by us, I mean him. We are going, like Adam Eve was supposed to do, we're going to rule over it with him. That's exciting news. Now, the reason we got into this mess was because of our desire to give our power over to the powers. Now, right, God, at the beginning of the story, God was the king. There was no other power. But we, who were second most powerful, gave our power to dangerous forces, and they ended up enslaving us. I want to read to you some quotes from uh, from a scholar N.T. Wright, who has just blown my mind with the way he talks about sin, worship, and idolatry as an exchange of our power to these forces. So I want to read a couple quotes, and then we can make some clarifying comments, and we'll, I think we'll be done. Uh, but here, here so uh, just a couple of, um, of quotes. So I want to read a couple of excerpts from different parts of the book. And, and he says this in one. The Bible, then, 
offers an analysis of the human plight different from the one normally imagined. So he's saying, he's, I'm going with what the Bible's trying to tell us in its story form. This is what the Bible's trying to say. Sin is not just bad in itself. It is the telltale symptom of a deeper problem. And the biblical story addresses that deeper problem. It includes the sin problem, but goes much further. The problem is that humans were made for a particular vocation, which is co-ruling over the creation with Jesus. They were made for a particular vocation, which they have rejected. That this rejection involves a turning away from the living God to worship idols. That this results in giving to the idols forces within the creation. So idols are forces within the creation. Giving over to them a power over humans and the world that was rightfully that of genuine humans. And that this giving our power over to these forces that belong to us, this leads to a slavery, which is ultimately the rule of death itself, the corruption and destruction of the good world made by the Creator. What is Mr. Wright saying there? He's saying we were given power, Adam and Eve given power to have dominion over the creation with him. But, Idolatry is the love of creation over the creator. And what happened when we said yes to the serpent and no to God was that we handed over our ruling power to the creation, to the forces, the apocalyptic forces behind the scenes of creation. So these weak little forces, we gave them our power. And so now we created a monster that is what we're enslaved by. We often use the word sin because that's what we do as impulsive, slave-like obedience to these powers and these forces. Now, see, the language is vague, as it was vague in Isaiah. But by the New Testament, we're using terms like Satan, demons, spiritual warfare, sin. Now, another excerpt. As we know in other walks of life, when people duck out of their assigned responsibilities, someone else will take them over instead, and no good will come of it. When humans sin, they hand to non-divine forces a power and authority that those forces were never supposed to have. And that's why God has to rescue us from our sin so that we can be liberated from these powers. And as we read in all those New Testament passages, we see that that's what Christ did on the cross as he pays for our sins, is he defeats these powers. We are set free now to reclaim our original vocation, our original calling, our original place of royalty, of being his sidekicks and ruling over his creation. And to continue the last excerpt, you can see, you can see this in the obvious examples 
um, where, where we're giving our power, right? And how it begins to enslave us. So that's what he's saying. You can see this in the obvious examples. Money, sex, and power itself. Like fire, these forces are good servants, but bad masters. Not for nothing were they treated as gods and goddesses in the ancient world, as indeed many people treat them today, though without using that language, sacrificing to them and obeying their every command. These powers need to be overcome, not so that we can live disembodied lives in which they play no part, but so that we can live fully human lives in which they make their contribution as and when appropriate, right? Nothing wrong with sex, money, and power when they're in their appropriate place, making the appropriate contribution, and when we are in charge of them. Problem is, is when we give our power to them. He continues, they, the the powers, the forces, they stop being demons when they stop being gods. Or in other words, they lose their tyranny when we stop giving them our love, our worship, and our devotion. He continues, but behind all specific powers or forces, many Jewish and Christian thinkers have recognized a darker, more nebulous power that drives ordinary people to do horrible things. And that is where you have the mastermind behind all of this, the devil himself. But of course, we saw in Isaiah chapter 27, in the name Leviathan, that Yahweh will defeat him for good. And I love the language being, uh, let me find it real quick. It was like his strong and mighty, and uh, here it is. Um, In that day, Yahweh with his hard and great and strong sword will Punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Let's focus, shall we, on the fact that the Bible's a story and we're in the midst of it and it's going toward a certain end. The apocalypse may have scary and confusing imagery in it, but focus on the victory that the powers are conquered. Power is restored to the people of God, and we will rule and reign with him in a wonderful future. So, in closing, what this means is if anything has power over us, it's because you are giving devotion and worship to it. Worship is the transfer of our power to that which we adore. So, if you find something having mastery in your life, You don't need it to have mastery of your life. There's a way out. You simply need to turn your worship toward Christ, the King, and give your devotion to him, your allegiance to him, your adoration to him. Because then you'll be giving your power to him. The one who, by the way, will mirror that power back to you. Because that's what God is into. He's not the kind of king who says, give me your resources so I can hoard them. 
No. Ephesians itself opens with the whole opposite saying, no, he is giving that power back to us. He wants the power so that he can break it from the ones that are using it improperly. And then he gives it back to us. Ephesians four later goes on to say that Jesus ascended and he gave gifts to men. Most kings ascend and take gifts from men. They come and they bring them their gifts and say, here, you have them. And the king hoards them. Nope. We say, yea, the ascended Christ. We give him our worship. And then he takes that and he gives it back to us. He pours the power back into us through gifts, through the Holy Spirit, through forgiveness, through love, through, through, through the growing of us to be more like him, through, through our freedom that we no longer need to be bound by rules and regulations and the law, but the spirit is liberty, right? That's, what he's doing. And so we need to start living lives and we need to examine where is something mastering me? Because if it's mastering you, you need to recognize that you're giving it power through worship. But that's already been broken. You're letting it limp on. Christ has defeated it. Put your worship, your attention, your focus, serve this king and you will find more liberty than you have ever had. We are meant to rule, not be ruled. So let's examine how we're doing in all the areas of our lives. And of course, when God says ruling with him, he's never an oppressive ruler putting people down. He rules by making the world around him better. He rules by serving and giving of himself. And rulership to him simply means power to the people in a way that I am not a slave. And so, I'm not saying that we need to go around domineering everything. You are a slave to power if that's what you're doing. Power is something to be used, to be given. Are you in charge or is the creation in charge of you? Is life in charge of you? That's why we need the story and we need the apocalypse because it shows us where things are going and don't let the false stories, the lying stories, the fake stories tell you to live differently. So friends, it's been great sharing with you. This is Pastor Brandon with Grace and Gratitude. Thank you for listening.